Welcome to today's edition of the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. In addition to feature reports, I'll bring you a look at regional and national agricultural news. And the show starts right after this. Hey, it's Jesse Waters from Fox News Channel. Hope to see you at my Ag Night on November 2nd. It's going to be a night you will not want to miss. We're waking up to a new dawn in agriculture, a better way, where farmers stop working the soil and start working with it. At Huma, our carbon-rich, humate-based products improve soil health and fertility, deliver nutrients more efficiently, and reduce crop input costs. Welcome to Humix Solutions with a Human Touch. Visit Huma.us to learn more. Inclement weather in California is negatively impacting cauliflower supply. Prices doubled to $34, a 10-year high. Unseasonably warm temperatures are causing quality issues and decreasing yields. And a reported volume from the Salinas-Watsonville area is around 50% of normal. The extreme overnight heat will likely impact the yields of other heat-sensitive commodities such as broccoli, cabbage, and Brussels sprouts grown in a region. Fortunately for buyers, cooler temperatures are on the way. Pomegranate harvest is underway in California and a crop that looks to have strong quality. They've started to pack the wonderful variety, according to Keith Wilson, with King Fresh Produce LLC. The crop is not huge and may be affected on some ranches by some cold weather in the early spring when the first flowers come out. It's going to be a decent size year and the crop is maybe five days later than normal. He adds that the internal colors are good and supplies should be available until mid-December with the possibility of covering some Christmas business. Coming into the weekend and through the next three weeks to November, 20th will be peak availability for the Thanksgiving poll, he says. The crop looks to be meeting good domestic demand. They've got export business into Asia, and that's also been active with single layers going there. The retail domestic chains are enthusiastic and booking orders. He notes that it has sizes from 18 count to 36s for a two-layer box. As for pricing, it's going to be similar to last year at this time due to inflation. There is more supply, but they are trying to keep their prices very similar to last year, so somewhere between a $25 low to $35 high on a 24-pound two-layer box. Nutriland USA, based in Irvine, has launched Samato, a whole food-derived melatonin sourced exclusively from tomatoes. Jean Bruno, chief scientific officer at Nutriland USA, expressed his enthusiasm for this pioneering product, stating that although the popularity of whole food-derived nutrients has been growing exponentially, Jean Bruno, chief scientific officer at Nutriland USA, expressed his enthusiasm for this pioneering product, stating that although the popularity of whole food-derived nutrients has been growing exponentially, the natural products industry has relied primarily on synthetically produced melatonin for use in dietary supplements. Now, with the introduction of Samato into the marketplace, Neutraland USA is able to offer the natural products industry a truly natural and sustainable whole food derived melatonin. Samato is made from whole dried tomatoes, a natural source of melatonin and other beneficial compounds such as lycopene, a potent antioxidant. It is suitable for vegans and vegetarians and does not have any allergen or GMO concerns. Samato is also sustainably and ethically sourced. It is also kosher certified and complies with applicable regulations. 
Chris Sayer grows lemons and avocados near Santa Paula. His lemons are within the quarantine zone established recently by the state of California for a lethal citrus disease marching its way northward from San Diego. State officials declared the quarantine after confirming a bacteria and Asian citrus ciliate insects collected in a residential tree in Santa Paula. Sayer's citrus packing house is outside of the quarantine zone, but his lemons are not. This creates a costly issue as he must perform costly mitigation measures on the farm to inhibit the movement of ciliates from the quarantine. Sayer's citrus packing house is outside of the quarantine zone, but his lemons are not. This creates a costly issue as he must perform costly mitigation measures on the farm to inhibit the movement of ciliates from the quarantine. He says they have to take extra measures to ensure the fruit is clean before they can move it. That could cost him anywhere from $300 to $700 an acre. Current citrus margins will not cover that cost. Sayer also grows avocados, which he points out are a better crop financially and are not inhibited by regulatory quarantines. Sayer will plant two acres of the new Luna UCR variety avocado, which was recently released by the University of California. He is optimistic that the Luna will diversify his avocado plantings and extend his avocado season. More than two dozen California Democratic lawmakers have sent a letter to Gary Gensler, chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, pressing him to follow the precedent California recently established in requiring companies to disclose detailed greenhouse gas emissions data. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed into law a bill that will require businesses with more than $1 billion in annual revenue that operate in California to provide detailed disclosure of their greenhouse gas emissions. The law requires large businesses to report their Scope 1, 2, and 3 emissions. Scope 1 emissions are those generated by fuel sources that a business owns, such as boilers, furnaces, and vehicles. Scope 2 emissions are greenhouse gases emitted to generate the electricity, steam, heat, or cooling of business purchases. Scope 3 emissions are generated indirectly from the supply chain and are almost always the largest pool of emissions for any business as well as the hardest to track. In March of 2022, the SEC proposed instituting a set of climate disclosures regulations that would require businesses to report their greenhouse gas emissions and information about climate-related risks that are reasonably likely to have a material impact on their business, results of operations, or financial condition. The SEC has received many comments from parties opposed to inclusion of Scope 3 emissions in forthcoming regulation, including ExxonMobil, Walmart, and agricultural organizations, ranging from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to the National Cotton Council to the Wisconsin Pork Association, all of which request, at the minimum, a Scope 3 exclusion for the agricultural industry. But the California lawmakers are strongly urging the SEC to follow California's lead and specifically include Scope 3 disclosure requirements in addition to Scope 1 and Scope 2 in their letter. Without consistent and reliable Scope 3 data, investors will be limited in evaluating the management's performance with respect to those risks and opportunity, according to the letter. Also, the California lawmakers say because California has passed SB 253 requiring large businesses in the state to report their Scope 3 emissions, the cost for California businesses to submit the same data to federal regulations is negligible. Gensler told the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services that it usually takes the SEC between 12 and 24 months to update its rulemaking, but also indicated that the SEC would not be rushed into final adoption. Join us for an unforgettable evening with Jesse Waters, co-host of Fox News at the International Agri-Center in Tulare, California. Tickets are extremely limited for this one-night-only experience, and they will sell out. 
Hey, it's Jesse Waters from Fox News Channel. Hope to see you at my Ag Night on November 2nd. It's going to be a night you will not want to miss. Don't miss your only chance to see Jesse Waters here in the heart of California on November 2nd. Reserve your spot now at myaglife.com forward slash myagnite. PCAs in the Southern Sacramento Valley have been telling UCCE Farm Advisor Conrad Mathesius about issues with Italian ryegrass for the last few years, specifically its resistance to a common herbicide. Development of herbicide resistance in Italian ryegrass over the years has caused increasing concern due to the weeds' need to cross-pollinate for small grain growers who are limited in their options for control. Mathesius started looking into the issue. One of the other trials we did was actually last year, uh, or perhaps it was actually the year before, when we had the big drought period. We had the tons of rain in October, and then we had all this germination. Um, people couldn't get out in the fields necessarily. We couldn't necessarily do burn downs. We did kind of did an in-season. And then we had this massive drought period from January to March. And in that case, what that really showed us was how important it was to prioritize treating these weeds early and at the right time. Why? The reason it's important to treat these weeds when you have the chance is because you need to treat them when they're actively growing. And if drought, you know, if drought conditions persist, they're going to not be actively growing anymore. And so that as that slows down, you reduce the chance that the crop, or sorry, that the target species, the weed is going to actually be take that herbicide in. And it's not going to, it's not going to be effective. And we saw actually like, so in that case, Axial up north, like I said, has done really well in the past, did really well uh, this year um, uh, in, in, other, in other circumstances. But in this drought year, it was awful. And because it just, it didn't do, and, and, but Osprey and Simplicity were also awful that year. Uh, and it had a lot to do with the fact that we sprayed these plants at the right tillering stage, right? It all was on label. It's like, this is, this should work. But that drought shut everything down and the plants didn't do anything. Rain came back in March, like 60 days after application, almost two months after application, and everything died finally. But by that time, the crop's been hammered, right? Because it's sitting there next to this very aggressive weed species that's very good at doing what it does and is getting crowded out. And so you end up getting this into this situation where it's like, okay, well, but did eventually kill the weeds, but they were just chilling next to the wheat and it really hammered uh, the, the, the the weeds there. So that lesson was basically more about me making a, a mistake and not spraying early enough and, uh, and then not fully appreciating how bad drought can be at limiting the efficacy of herbicides. So all of that to say um, that, you know, it's not just what you're using it's also obviously when you're using it it's the conditions in which you're using it um you know there are other methods to control these things such as the the the, the um uh, the cultivation or in some cases uh one other thing that i want to talk about a little bit is harvest weed seed control so harvest weed seed control is where you're crushing the seed at harvest I've done so we did some shatter work here. We see that the shatter percentages in California are fairly similar to those in other states where they did this harvest weed seed control type of work. So in Virginia, Texas, the Northwest, and the polluters, you've seen we've seen some of this. 
And there's some studies out there that show how effective the harvest weed seed control actually is at reducing the number of individual ryegrass seedlings per square meter. And so the idea would be that we could do that here as well, but it's a question of them of, of finding the equipment that that is going to have enough horsepower to run these seed destructor mills that usually will go. So harvest weed seed control essentially is putting a some sort of seed mill or something on the back of a combine that will either capture and do a direct, like put it into a bale, or will capture the chaff and crush it and destroy that seed before it redistributes it back out to the field. So that's what harvest weed seed control is. And we've seen it work in Australia. We've seen it work in other parts of the US with similar shadow rates to what we have around here. Um, and so we think it would be effective, but the limitation is, is the equipment. Um, because a lot of the folks have combines that are too small in California. We don't have the mass acreage that they do in the Midwest and the Northwest of wheat to, to justify having a gigantic combine. So it has to do, it's kind of, there's kind of a, we need to convince some of the folks who are making these machines to kind of like work with us and our systems. The research surrounding Italian ryegrass populations in recent years makes it clear that growers should consider the use of axial as an alternative weed control if they haven't already, as well as the importance of an integrated weed management program. You know, using certified seed, trying to set, make sure your equipment is clean so you're not going from like one end of the state to the other and transporting, doing the work of the that Dixon resistance you know, population of ryegrass that 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 is really good against ALS that, that, that doesn't um, that has a fairly strong resistance to ALS inhibitors. They're not taking that up north now. We're like you know, and they're losing their efficacy efficacy up there. Um, so I think that that so there's uh, but there's other things like that are that are also pretty clear just from the experiments that we've been looking at is just rotating herbicides where possible, and you know if you if you do two herbicides, this one thing I, I, one example I often use is using two herbicides and there's several ways you could use just two different herbicides. And some of them are going to be way more effective. If you use herbicide A for, for, for one season, two season, three season, four season, five season, and then go to herbicide B for one season, two, all the way to five seasons, it's going to be much more likely to develop resistances in your in your weed population, if, as opposed to just doing season one, do A, season two, do B, season three, do A, season four, do B, right? Where you're doing a fairly regular switching up or you're doing tank mixes and those sorts of things to kind of help um, control your weeds. Uh, you're basically switching up, not just the label name, you're switching up the group, the, you know, the group of the herbicide group itself. Um, on top of that, you know, you talk about rotating your herbicides not just like so it's not always hitting the exact same time of the year so you're you're hitting you're using axial early one year and then you're using it uh, uh and then next year you're using some other you know some other some some other control up front as a burn down and then you're coming back and using axial in season for the second season right um so it's not just year to year it's also within the season like moving and shifting as much as you can and still maintaining some of that control so some of the other things just going down the list that we could look at for kind of IPM strategies for reducing this resistance development is using the cultivation, like I mentioned, where possible. Uh, crop rotation is awesome. That's part of the reason we talk about these marginal lands. They don't have as many, many options in crop rotation. Clethodim is 
not as effective as it used to be. And oftentimes that's what you get to, you know, that's the only other rotation, one of the only other rotations you might have on the, on the margins in these parts of the valleys might be winter peas, right? That's your, that's a broadleaf you can grow in the winter um, when we have rain and clethodim is what you would use to control um, the, the, the weeds in that, in that, in that system. But if it's losing efficacy, like, right, we're, we have fewer and fewer options. You, so another one I want to talk about is maybe using pre-emergent herbicides where possible. Problem is we don't have a lot of those registered here. Um, so there is some, there are some efforts to kind of get some pre-emergent herbic uh, herbicides registered, um, uh, you know, in, in California systems, but th that, those are, those are hard to kind of know exactly when they'll hit, when they'll become available, applying at the appropriate rate, applying at the right time, uh, checking for escapes, calibrating your spray rigs, just making sure that your nozzles are running appropriately and working properly can do so you don't have massive amounts of escapes uh, that get out there. And then, uh, like I said, capturing, destroying seeds at harvest, using certified seed, and then changing your herbicides in, in multiple different ways. You're listening to My Ag Life. I'm Taylor Jalstrom. Smart growers know sustainability means managing pests at the same time they manage other priorities in their fields, which is why smart growers know Certus Biologicals. For more than 20 years, Certus Biologicals has been the world's leader when it comes to biological pesticides, delivering proven solutions that keep operations sustainable and growing. Learn more at CertusBio.com. Lawmakers have announced the reintroduction of the Adopt-Greet Act. The legislation is a bipartisan bill directing the Environmental Protection Agency to update its greenhouse gas modeling for ethanol and biodiesel. Republican Senators Chuck Grouse of Iowa, John Thune of South Dakota, and Minnesota Democrat Amy Klobuchar introduced the legislation. Grassley says his colleagues and him were working to empower the innovation stemming from their energy and agricultural communities and get federal emissions testing up to speed with private sector producers. The Adopt-Greet Act would require the EPA to apply the Argonne National Labs greenhouse gases, regulated emissions, and energy use and transportation, or GREET, model to energy commodities under the Renewable Fuel Standard. It would hold EPA accountable by ensuring the agency updates its modeling every five years. The EPA would need to report to Congress either affirming its modeling is current or explaining why no updates were made. Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin has ordered Syngenta to divest its ownership of approximately 160 acres in the state. Griffin also imposed a civil penalty of $280,000 for failure to timely report foreign ownership by the Chinese state-owned company. The land in question is owned by Northrop King Sea Company, a subsidiary of Syngenta Seeds LLC, which is owned by a China national chemical company known as ChemChina. Griffin says he is ordering ChemChina as a prohibited foreign party controlled business to divest this land within two years, or he will commence an enforcement action in Craighead County Circuit Court. Under Arkansas Act 636, state law bars a prohibited foreign party controlled business from acquiring or holding public or private land in Arkansas, either directly or through affiliated parties. In March of 2022, Syngenta Seeds LLC submitted paperwork to USDA regarding the property under the Federal Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act, stating that ultimately, the foreign person that holds indirectly a significant interest in person owning the land is from China. Fiscal year 2024 is not looking good for farm exports, already down through 11 months tabulated for fiscal year 2023. Unfortunately, I think fiscal year 24 is, is probably going to be 
uh, a little bit challenging for U.S. ag exports. American Farm Bureau Federation senior economist Veronica Nye. As we've seen the U.S. dollar continue to um, to fluctuate but stay high, um, it, it makes our products price above our competitors. And then it makes also, of course, imports cheaper. Nye says superior U.S. product quality is not enough to overcome the dollar's strength, made stronger by rising U.S. interest rates and other factors that hurt exports. You look at things like um, a Mississippi uh, River being low that um, increases transportation costs. You look at competitors having really good growing seasons. And then there's the lapsed Farm Bill and its market promotion programs that will likely have to be extended at expired levels. If we continue to see that funding at the same level as it's been for the last um, you know, couple of decades, uh, we see how that, that power, uh, the strength of those allocated funds continue to deteriorate. USDA says farm exports through the first 11 months of fiscal year 2023 were down 10% from the same period in fiscal year 2022, that after back-to-back record export years. The Organic Trade Association applauds the introduction of the Continuous Improvement and Accountability in Organic Standards Act. The legislation ensures organic standards continuously evolve and improve and to hold the federal government accountable for keeping up with the needs and expectations of the dynamic organic marketplace. The legislation would amend the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990 to provide a streamlined and predictable process to review and revise organic standards implemented by USDA. It would enable the improvement and advancement of organic to forge ahead into the future, OTA CEO and Executive Director Tom Chapman says ensuring continuous improvement for organic is their highest priority in the 2023 Farm Bill, and this legislation goes far to address that objective. The bill requires the USA to review and revise national organic standards not less frequently than once every five years. The legislation also highlights a continuation of the established consultation process with the National Organic Standards Board and input from the public. The latest funding awards for projects designed to expand the domestic production capacity of fertilizer are part of a broader effort, according to the USDA Secretary of Agriculture. USDA Ag News reporter Rod Bain. The latest round of funding awards associated with efforts to innovate the nation's fertilizer production industry. We're announcing 17 grants, $52.6 million of support for projects in 12 states. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack with the announcement this week in Illinois. The awards are part of the Fertilizer Production Expansion Program. 33 such projects have been funded over the past year and a half. Totaling $121.5 million in states that are going to produce additional fertilizer, produce substitutes for fertilizer, or to allow farmers to do uh, better use of the fertilizer that they have. In addition, we're also announcing four additional projects that we're going to add to a comment period where we're asking folks to comment. With public comment accepted through November 15th. Also announced, expansion of 2023 insurance coverage for double cropping. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USA's Forest Service has announced nearly $50 million in grant funding. 
The funding is for proposals that support crucial links between resilient, healthy forests, strong rural economies, and jobs in the forestry sector. USDA says the funding will spark innovation, create new markets for wood products, expand processing capacity, and help to tackle the climate crisis. Agriculture Secretary Tom Bilsack says they are investing in rural economies by growing markets for forest products through sustainable forest management while reducing wildfire risk, fighting climate change, and accelerating economic development. The Forest Service is requesting proposals from eligible entities in the private nonprofit and government sectors, including tribes, local and state governments, businesses, for-profit entities, institutions of higher education, as well as public utility, fire, conservation, and school districts, among others. These investments will support forest management projects to improve forest health and reduce wildfire risk across all land ownerships. For more information, log on to the Forest Service webpage. JCS Marketing is your number one way to connect with the ag industry. Through print magazines, digital media, podcasts, and live and virtual events, JCS Marketing has the reach to inform, educate, and influence growers in the Western United States. Everywhere you go, you see West Coast Net Magazine on every one of my customers' tables. So that tells you everything. It's there, so they're reading it. Our My Ag Life platform includes podcast interviews and digital articles for busy professionals on the go. Our live events, continuing education webinars, and virtual conferences help growers connect with leading researchers and industry leaders. Let JCS Marketing help you connect. That will wrap up today's show. You've been listening to the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm Lori Boyer. From all of us here at the JCS Marketing Team, thank you for listening. Thank you.